to be dismissed for children's church. You can follow Brenda out the back or Carl. Carl, are you doing children's church today? One of those two. If you have your Bibles with you, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 22. We'll be starting there this morning. And I tell you what, I'm excited. This is, um, we're talking about one of my favorite subjects today. I'm pumped about this. I'll be ranting a little. Y'all are so far away, I'm going to move off the stage here, come a little closer to you, make sure you can't get away. Uh, anyway, um, we're going to talk about, uh, talk about uh, something really important, actually maybe the most important this morning. Um, when we, uh, let's see, I think, Brent tells me I've been pastor here about 10 years, which is hard to believe, isn't it? Any of you, you have been around that long? That's hard to believe. Can you believe that, 10 years? I think she may be wrong and not telling me, but anyway. I don't really know. I can't keep up with dates at all. But anyway, it's been about 10 years. And we sat down um, in, in, uh, together with our leadership, and we, we developed some core values, some things that we want, um, want to value here in our church, in, in our leadership and everything we do. We, we sat down and we came up with some, some core things that we want to value here, things that we think are so important that we want it to shape everything that we do. We want it to shape the context of the things we teach about, we wanted to shape the direction of what we decide to do and what we decide we don't want to do. Um, and one of those things that we talked about is a really simple one. This was a no-brainer, but uh, the very first one we came up with was is that we want to value a great love for God, that, that we want our church people, we want our church leadership, we want all of our messages, all the content of what we teach, um, we want it all to reflect a really deep uh, love for God. Now, that was simple. No one's going to stand up and like disagree. Like, I don't think that's a good one. I don't think we should love God. That's, this is a no-brainer, no obviously, right? But, uh, but the thing about it that's, that's so important is that um, it should shape everything that we do in our church. It should shape everything that we do is that we want to demonstrate. We want to we have as part of our culture here that, that we want to continually be growing in our love for God. And, uh, and we need to be continually growing in our love for God. But um, obviously, the, the place I'm going to go to this morning is Matthew chapter 22. If you have your Bible there, we're going to read verses 34 through about 40 there. So in Matthew chapter, chapter 22, verse 34, um, would you read along with me here? Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. That's kind of funny way to start, isn't it? The, the Pharisees thought, well, he tripped them up, but he won't get us. We're, we're too smart. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Can you believe the arrogance of folks and the arrogance in our hearts in, in also? But the arrogance of these folks to, to, to test the Savior, right, the, the Creator, they're going to test him, see what he knew, right? Okay, pretty amazing. Okay, the teacher, or teacher, he asked him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, you have to remember, what did the Pharisees, what did the, 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 uh, the teachers of the law, what did they been doing for for a few hundred years, they'd taken all of the laws of Moses and they just built regulation and regulation trying to clarify and stipulate about what this means. And, and when it says don't work on the Sabbath, what does that mean exactly? What's work and what's not work? And they had spent, you know, generations really trying to figure out, well, well, let's define work so that everyone is on board. Everybody kind of knows what, what work is and what work isn't. And you shouldn't work the Sabbath. Well, here's what it means you can do, but you shouldn't do these things. And they had built regulations and rules on top of regulations and uh, had gotten really confused in the meantime, correct? Anyway, but uh, anyway, that's what they've been spending their time doing. And so Jesus replies this way, though. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Uh, don't you love the simplicity of it all? Don't you love it that they had made everything so complicated and so complex? They had basically taken the Mosaic Law and they'd made a bureaucratic mess out of it. They just kept adding rules and adding regulations. And I don't know about you, who hates rules and regulations? Yeah, I do. I, I hate them. That's part of my simple nature of rebellion, right? But, um, but we hate them. But th this is what they, had done, uh, what they had done. And Jesus said, let me boil it down for you. It's this simple. Love God with every fiber of your being. Love God with, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, with all that you are. Love God. That is the first and greatest commandments. First and greatest commandment. And then he, but he goes on to answer. And this is, we're going to talk about this one next week, the second part of this. In verse 39, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to what he says. He said something really kind of shocking here. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Basically, he says, you can summarize all of the Old Testament, the, the, the Old Testament teaching from Leviticus and uh, Moses' commandments, uh, from, the, from the Ten Commandments to all the Levitical law, all the way to the prophets that told us how we're to behave and how we're not to, supposed to cling to idols, especially Jeremiah had a lot to say about, not, about idolatry and the Israelite people. And he said, all of the commandments have to do with or hang to these two things, love God and love people. Very simple, isn't it? Uh, let me just say a couple things about that before we go on. Uh, that is this, is that the, the Israelites, the, the, the religious rulers for decades or generations had been trying to dictate people's behavior. And they tried to spell out by, by law and by regulation, these are the things that a good Jew does and these are the good things that a good, good, good Jew doesn't do. And they tried to spell it all out and tried to manage people's behavior, right? Well, if you have children you know how well this works, right? If you've followed Christ very long, you know how well this works, right? Paul would say in Colossians, he says, he says rules, regulations have no ability to, to harness or, or to keep hold of, the, of, our, of our sensual desires, of, the, the, of our sinful nature. They have no ability to control them uh, because you can't just control someone's behavior. Who of you have ever tried, and especially do this around the first of the, the year, right? You, 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 you want to change your behavior because you want something. You know, you want to you be more fit, and so you're going to go on a diet, or you want to be more fit, and so you're, you're going to join a gym. And, and how long do those things typically last when all you're doing is trying to control your behavior, trying to stipulate, well, I'm going to eat this way, and I'm going to eat these things and not these things. Well, I'm going to work out three times a week, and, and I'm going to continue this. Well, for most of us, how long does that kind of thing work out when we're just trying to manage our behavior? Now, what if it's something else? What if it's something um, a little more sinister at work in us? What, the, what if it's something a little darker in us? What if it's um, a constant need or a constant desire to be significant in the eyes of the opposite sex? That's dangerous. What if it's a need to find escape from your trouble and the way that you do it is, is by a substance? legal or illegal, that's dangerous, right? How helpful is it for rules and regulations in those things? They have no power, do they? They, they have no ability to really help us. And Jesus said, the problem is by teaching us this way. He says, the problem is not the behavior. The problem is the heart. The problem ultimately is that whenever it comes down to us breaking a commandment, whenever it comes down to not following God, the problem is, is that at that moment, we love something more than we love God. So you take care of the heart, you take care of the behavior, not the other way around. 
okay? The, radically different teaching from what... The, and the Pharisees never got it, did they? They never understood this. They, they thought when, when the king, when the Messiah would come, that he would be just like them. He would be all about all these righteous rules, and he would be really excited about all these righteous requirements they'd made to, to really try to manipulate people's behavior and get them to behave well. But Jesus came, and, and there were, they, they came, and they complained against him. Matter of fact, they said, you're teaching against the law. And Jesus said, no, oh, I've never said anything against the law. The law is good. The law is right. It is the way that, that, that we know God's standard, but no one will be declared righteous by it. How come? Because no one could follow all the requirements of the law, all right? So the problem that we have is not a behavior issue, and I want to speak to you really quickly here about this. Um, all of us have some sort of issue going on in us, and that's reflected in our sinful nature, right? Every single one of us have some issue going on at any given time, all right? Sometimes we're completely oblivious to it. Sometimes you're completely blind to it. This is the problem about sin. You know, one of the things that the Bible teaches about sin is it's deceitful, right? One of the things about sin is, is that it hides in you. It hides in your sinful nature, and it doesn't raise its hand and say, oh, look how ugly this is. It is deceitful, and you and I have blind spots. Every single one of us this morning has blind spots of sin that we're in that, that we have trouble with, every single one of us. I want to tell you this morning... Um, it is a matter of being in God's Word and allowing His Spirit to search you by which we can know ourselves, right? James said that the, that the, the Word of God is like a mirror. And, and, to, and for a man to know himself, he has to go and he has to look at the mirror. And then he can, he can look at the mirror and he can study himself and he can see what he's really like, right? Um, let's talk about that another day. I'm, I'm not going to go any further with that this morning. But, but uh, the, the way that we come to know and the way that we, we progress in sanctification, we progress in holiness, is that we have to be in this word and we have to let it speak to us. All right? Um, one of the things, one of the books I read, Soren Kierkegaard, one of the things he writes is that when you read and you read these stories, and here I just did it for you. I don't know if you've caught on this morning, but we just did it this morning. And see, and, and I just told you about how arrogant the Pharisees were in the story, right? They were trying to catch Jesus. Soren Kierkegaard said one thing. He said something, to, to help the, the Word of God to be a mirror to you, you have to read the Word of God like this. Hearing that Jesus silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. You and I read that, and, and we look at it, and we say, oh, uh, uh, here's Jesus and the Pharisees. Well, we're on Jesus' side, right? So we relate to Jesus. Um, one of the things he, he kind of points out, he doesn't really say it in these words, but this is kind of what I got from one of his essays, is that, okay, you're going to read the Bible, and, it's, and you're going to come across these all, all, all the time. It's going to happen all the time. You're going to come in, in the context with basically the characters in the story are God and sinners. Who do you relate to? Really? You think you relate to Jesus better? Really? You think when you read this story, you, this is the one that you should identify with as Jesus and not the sinner? Siren Kierkegaard said this. He said, when you read the scriptures, you say, that's me. I'm arrogant like that Pharisee. I'm arrogant like that teacher of the law. The arrogance that I see in him that I hate, I have that same kind of arrogance in my heart. Right? We read a story and we read, we, we read stories, and something that tells a compelling story is something that gets you to identify with the characters. One of the things that Siren Kierkegaard wrote was, when you identify with a character in the Bible, the person that you have the most in common with is the sinner, right? So he said, when you read the Word of God, look at it like a mirror and look at it and say, that's me. I, I recognize that in myself. It's one of those ways that God uses to identify and to point out sin on ourselves or else, listen, it is easy to be blind for your entire life about your own sin. That's a problem. 
you know, I was uh, part of the the uh, part of the um, biblical counseling course I'm going through. One of the things that it points out is is about phases of marriage. It identifies as three phases of marriage. The first is the honeymoon phase, right? Where and this is the one where it's ooey gooey. You know, there's just this love and completely oblivious to the other person's shortcomings, right? Everybody remember that part of your relationship? <laughs> Someone said no. Uh, we'll just go on. We'll just pretend like that didn't happen. Okay, and it says about the first couple of years of marriage, you go through a honeymoon period where you're just kind of oblivious to the other person's issues. You're kind of oblivious to all of their problems. Um, but then the honeymoon period ends, right? Then you realize in the second stage of marriage, and I can't remember what it's called. I need to go back and review my notes a little. But anyway, um, in the second par- part of marriage, it's, you begin to see, well, you're not doing for me all the things that I thought you would. I'm not feeling as important as I used to when I was around you because you're not looking at me with those ooey gooey eyes anymore. And I'm not feeling like I'm the center of your universe anymore. And I'm not feeling all this. And they start to put demands on their other person about, you got to make me feel this way again. You got to make me feel significant. You got to make me feel important. You got to, you got to make me feel lovable. You got me, ladies, you got me make me feel beautiful. And you're not doing that as much as you were. And they start pushing their other partner to perform. And you got to do this for me. I was feeling important. I was feeling pretty this way. I was feeling significant. I was feeling strong for you. And now that's gone. And so there's this second phase of marriage where it's the partners pushing against each other that says, make me feel the way you used to make me feel. And the marriage at that point can go one of two ways. They'll be completely disenchanted in their marriage and they'll start to drift apart and start to what? Look for those needs to be met somewhere else. Or they'll start to realize, you know what? Our marriage has problems like every marriage has problems. And I own some of those. Yeah, that's the two ways marriage can go at that point. But, but typically, marriage follows these things. And, of course, the years and this time, it, it's a little bit different for each. But, but the, here, here's the deal is that in God's uh, desire, in his will, he's set up marriage in such a way that you and I go toward each other in marriage. And I go to Brenda, and Brenda goes to me. And we try to meet each other's needs. But we realize ultimately that we can't meet all of each other's needs, that we need God. We need him and that we can't be God for each other. And so in the end, ultimately marriage, God allows marriage to, for you to go and to seek and to have those needs met. But ultimately you step away and say, but wait, I still need a savior. I still need a rock. I still need security. I still need God's acceptance. I still need God's strength. I still need him to be my rock. And ultimately he allows that to, to run out so that you and I would seek and pursue Amen. That ever happened to you? Don't raise your hand. It's all right. It happens to all of us. Okay. You know what? Goodness gracious, that was a... Was that any of that in my notes, Jennifer? No. Okay. All right. Let's get on to the notes. I could talk about this stuff all day. I tell you what, this is important, and I love it um, because I struggle with it, and, and, I, and I think we all do. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, but here's the deal. So we talk about wanting to have a great love for God, but here's the deal is that so many times we really struggle with that. Listen, I, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners here, and I think you are too, is that we can all look and say, because here's the deal, God wants to be your savior. He wants to be your redeemer. He wants you to, be, to find him as, as your rock and your strength and your security. But here's the thing about us as humans, we can't touch him. 
we want something that we can see and touch and cling to. And so we feel much better when we are sick and we can look and hold on to and touch and go see a doctor. We, we feel much better with our financial needs. If, if I have a job that I go to and it's physical and I know I'm going to get a paycheck every two weeks, I feel much better about my security there. I can feel much more significant when I'm significant to my wife than I have to go to God for significance, when I can go to the opposite sex. I can feel much more secure um, in my home when my home is secure than having to depend on God. We all the time are looking for other places other than God to go and look for our security. And let me tell you this about the human nature that's kind of revealed in the Old Testament in particular. What we think will save us, we will love and worship. Okay? Let me give you a real quick example. We had Palm Sunday a couple of weeks ago. And in Palm Sunday, you remember what? As Jesus rode in on the donkey and he, he rode into town in Jerusalem. And you remember what the people said? What did they shout to him? A word, Hosanna. The word Hosanna means what? Save. It means save. What a weird thing. But it, 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 it had become more than just the word save. It had become a, 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 a word of praise and worship. How is it from, from save to worship? Well, let me tell you. People were looking for Hosanna. They were looking for a Savior. And because we tend to worship and we tend to praise and we tend to love that which we think will save us or give us significance or give us security or make us feel important or make us feel significant, we tend to worship those things. And so the word Hosanna became a praise to say Savior, the one who saves us, the one who comes to deliver us. And it became, it changed from a word to just like a prayer to say save us or help us. It became shouts of praise to Jesus as our Savior the one who will save us, the one who comes from the Lord to save us. Tim, could you do me a favor? Could you give me a, a cup of water? Thank you, sir. Um, and it had become save us. It had become save us. And we tend to look everywhere else but God for our safety and our security and, and importance and significance. The, the Old Testament has a word from that. Anybody know what that is? They're, they're called uh, idols. That's right. They're called idolatry. When we look to God for what only God can do, uh, we look to other things for only what God can do. That's called idolatry. Uh, we are all idolaters. Um, John Calvin said that we are all from our mother's womb. We are master craftsmen of idols, always looking for something that we can touch and physically put our hands on to take the place of God. Would you look with me in Romans chapter 1? We're going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. This is... Let me, in Romans is tough. Romans chapter 1, 2, and uh, I guess 1 and 2, basically. Paul is going to take and, and say, all Gentiles and all Jews are all unrighteous before God. And he's basically going to say, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're Jewish. I don't care if you're a Gentile. Every one of us has sinned and fallen into sin. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Matter of fact, that happens, right, in, in chapter 3. But in verse, chapter 1 in particular, he's talking about Gentiles. Chapter 2 in particular, he's talking about Jews. And he's talking about how we all fall uh, guilty of sin. And listen how he starts in verse, verse chapter 1, talking about that. In, in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, listen what he says about the, the, the sinfulness of mankind. Thank you. <laughs> you got me a lid. Yeah, remind me, remind me of this later. Did Brenda put you up to this? Is she in here? All right. Thank you. That's much better. Thank you very much. Sippy cup. How about 
All right. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Listen to what he's saying about mankind. This is just everyone in general. He's just talking about an accusation against all of mankind. Although they knew God, they neither, listen to what it says, two accusations against mankind. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Okay, let me stop there for just a moment. So what's to say there is that they knew God. People knew God. He talked just a little bit before that about God being known in, in his creation. God can be known. His, his, um, his wisdom, his strength, his uh, creative power can be known by what's been, been made known in creation. But even though they knew God, see, the problem wasn't that they didn't know enough about God. The problem was even they took what they knew about God, and here in just a minute, they're, we're gonna, he's going to tell us that they exchanged that, what, what they knew about him for something else. Um, the problem is, is they didn't glorify God. They didn't thank him for who he was. They didn't, they didn't seek him. They didn't, they didn't pursue him for all that he was and, and the majesty and the glory that is God. They didn't give thanks to him, nor did they glorify him. Then in verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in, sinful uh, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. We're not going to get into that this morning. Don't have time. Verse 25, they exchanged, here's that word again, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. Okay, what's that say there? All of mankind did what? We saw the glory of God. We saw who God was. We saw his creative power in, in the creation, much less knowing what we know about God in the scriptures, much less what we know about God in Jesus Christ. And it says, we took that, and we traded it in for something else, right? We took the glory of God, and it was like a baseball card, and we said, I don't want this one. I want that instead. So I want to trade the glory of God for something that's far less uh, important, something that's of far less value. And, and why? It's because our sinful heart. We don't want to go to God. We don't want to depend on him. We, in our rebellious nature, we don't want to depend on him for all of those things, even though he wants to be all those things for us. Amen? The problem is a problem with our hearts. And Jesus says, you want to follow the commandments? You've got to love God. You've got to love him with all, every fiber of your being. And your sin problem and my sin problem is that we don't love God enough. The reason that we go to other things, the reason that we go to other places is because we think we can find our importance, our significance, um, our, our, our security, our strength, our beauty in those things instead. And it's cheap and it's easy and it's exchanging the glory of God for something cheap and easy, but it's something we can put our hands on and we feel better about. That's the problem with mankind. We traded in our creator and decided, no, I want to worship the things that he created instead. Right? Okay, that's the whole problem with mankind, the whole problem that we have. And listen, I'm telling you this morning, I have that problem in my heart. I have that problem in my heart. You have that problem in your heart. We are all idolaters. The reason why the Old Testament is full with stories of idolatry, not because you and I are so tempted to go home and whittle a god this morning. No, it's because we're so tempted to look, about, to look uh, towards something in creation to fulfill us and to be for us what God intended to be all along and what he desires to be. And in the end, we end up loving and worshiping those things instead of God. Okay, let's, wait, let's move on. Okay, so let me say this. Our love for God, it will never be perfect. It is, we, we are never going to get there. It is never going to be perfect. It, we are never going to love him fully. He's never in this life. He's never going to have all of our hearts. 
there's always going to be some part of us that's looking somewhere else but for him. There's always going to be a little bit of a tinge of selfishness and self-centeredness and, and, a, and some part of us that's always exchanging, looking for somewhere else to grab hold of what we think we need to save us or make us feel so, so important or significant. It is never going to be uh, perfect. But I want you to listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, you've got to turn there if you've got your Bibles with you this morning. You've got to see this. You're going to want to remember this because it's something you're going to want to come back to later. John chapter 16, we're going to be in verse 25. This is, this is the upper room discourse. This is Jesus talking to his disciples and telling them what's all going to happen. He's telling them, hey, here in a little while, you're not going to see me. And, of course, they're not, they don't understand this is going to be like tomorrow. But um, here, you're not going to see me. This is the night before he's crucified. He's been betrayed, and he's talking to his disciples. He's just, man, it's just so great. He's just pouring into these guys reassurance and encouragement to hang in there, and, and, and you're going to have hope, and you're going to be discouraged, but, but your grief is going to turn into joy. And these words are just full of passion. You could just read them as Jesus is saying. I'm just, just really concerned for his followers, for these men who have followed him for three years. Anyway, in verse 25 of chapter 16, Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying you will, I will ask the Father on, on, my, on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Okay, overall, this... this um, this paragraph is about Jesus saying the, the relationship that you have with God is going to fundamentally change because of what I'm about to do. No longer are you going to be coming to me and I'm going to be asking the Father because of what I'm about to do for you and that he was going to bring complete cleansing to everyone who would follow him. But man would, be, would come to God finally after generations. Man would be able to approach God with clean hands because of the sacrifice that Jesus had made and that he would be our intercessor. But we, because when he died and the veil was torn, what was separating us from God would have been torn apart by Jesus Christ and we could have fellowship and relationship with him again that was lost in the garden, that was lost in the fall, and we get to have it all over again in, uh, after Jesus Christ comes. But the point I want to get to this morning is this. this is so important. It's such incredible stuff. But in verse 27, listen to what he says. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. Okay, let me pause there for just a minute. Jesus just said to the disciples, God loves you. Why? Oh, come on. It's a small crowd. We can talk. Because you have loved me. How, did the, how well did the disciples do loving Jesus? They were terrible at it. I mean, really, weren't they? I mean, yeah, they followed him around for three and a half years, and they lived together, and, and he taught them ministry together. But you remember James and John, who were, you know, two of the most important disciples, they, they, were, they were jockeying with position for each other about who would be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. And the other disciples were arguing with them. No, I think I'm going to be the greatest. When, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was in anxiety about what was about to happen to him and whether or not he would have to drink this cup of suffering, the other disciples did what? They slept. Whenever, and he was going to tell them a little later in this discourse, he was going to tell you, he was going to tell them, all of you are going to leave me alone. Every one of you. And you're going to go to your own homes and all of you are going to leave me 
alone. When he needed them most, and Jesus knew this was going to happen, when he needed them most at the Garden of Gethsemane, when he needed them most for someone to step into one of those trials and say, all of you are liars. He didn't say any of these things that you're accusing him of. None of them were there for him. Not one. And Jesus says to them here, because you've loved me, my Father loves you. Okay, how in the world did Jesus get there? Let me tell you this. When God sees even the small things that he, by his Holy Spirit, has done in us, even those tiny little things, those almost accidents of good followership that the, that the disciples did, God looked at it, he sifted through all the junk, and he found little gems of beautiful love for his son. And he says, I'm counting this. I love you for this. Their love was imperfect. They were much more motivated by their own self-preservation and their own self-interest. They were selfish in following Jesus. They wanted to be important in his kingdom. They were more concerned about that than what Jesus was doing. They were selfish because they ran away when there was any sense of any trouble, and they weren't a very good friend to Jesus when Jesus needed a friend. But occasionally, every once in a while, they demonstrated a real love that they had for Jesus Christ. And God sifted through all the junk, he sifted through all of their selfishness. He sifted through all their self-interest, and he found that, and he said, this is precious to me. You love my son, and I love you for it. All right, now, this is you and I as well, right? This is us. When you combine, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not obedient as obedient to God as I need to be. I, I still need work, and I'm always going to need work. And, and my love for God is never going to be perfect. I'm always going to struggle with idols in my heart as long as I'm connected to this sinful nature. I'm always going to be there, and you will too. But here's the great and glorious thing. When you take Jesus' sacrifice, and, and if you would imagine with me for just a moment, Jesus' sacrifice is being a burnt offering, like a fragrant aroma that arises to God. And you take all the stuff that I do, some of it's out of horrible motives. Sometimes I do it because of selfishness. Sometimes I, I don't follow God well. Sometimes I do things I shouldn't do. Sometimes the things I should do, I don't do. I play out Romans 7 in my life every day, right? But occasionally, every once in a while, the Spirit of God works in me, and I do something in beautiful, loving obedience to God. And when it's in when it's, uh, when it's in intertwined with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, when it's done in that union that I have with him, God takes that sacrifice and takes that burnt offering, and it is like a fragrant aroma to him. It is pleasing. It is uh, 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 precious to him. And he says, you did this out of love for my son, and I'm counting it. I love you for it. I love you for it. All right? Your love and my love is never going to be perfect. It's just not ever going to be that way. But it, it's so important to know that the work that he's doing in you. So let, let me give just, just a quick example. When you go and you do something that's utterly selfless, when you do something for someone um, who, who, has, who owes you nothing, who can do nothing, and I'm not talking about doing something for your wife or doing something for your husband or doing something for your children or doing something for your parents, but you do something for someone who can do nothing for you 
When you go and you visit someone in the nursing home, you go to visit someone in the hospital, you go and take food to a neighbor, and, and you may not even ever see them again. But if you do that kind of thing, if you do that kind of selfless thing, God looks at that precious little gem and he says, you did this out of love for my son, and I love you for it. In the morning when you're having your quiet time and you're opening up and, and you're just, you're empty and you're, you're, or you're hurt or you've been suffering or you're just hungry to have more of Jesus in your life and you sit there and you pray and tears roll down your face because you, you play, pray to the Lord and you say, I need more of you in my life. God looks at that little gem and says, I love you for that. I love you for that. Whenever... Um, you're in your relationship and, and with your spouse um, and um, you decide that you're going to love them despite whatever is going on in your life and you're going to sacrifice for them because that's the model that Jesus showed you is that I don't care what you've done for me. I'm going to demonstrate Jesus' love for you. God gathers that up, dusts all the junk off and says, that's a gem. That counts. And all this because, why? Because we're beginning to act like and we're beginning to see in little spurts and it's not consistent enough in any of our lives. It's not consistent enough in any of us that we do these things well enough. There's just not any of us who can do it all that well or all that consistently. consistently. But every single one of them counts because it's a work of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's a work to say, I've seen, he's changed my heart, he's changed my life, and I want to be a little bit more like him. I want to love him a little better. And when we do, God sees it and says, precious to me. That's precious to me. I'm going to close with that. Um, would you, uh, let's, see, let's just take a little bit of time this morning and pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, for many of us, Lord, we're just so aware of our own sin that we're, it's just frustrating. We just wish that, wish that our hearts would be changed faster than they are. Um, but, Lord, our, our hearts, just we, they're just changed so slowly. I, and uh, I, I don't really understand that. I, I wish it could happen faster. Um, but, Lord, your, your grace meets us there and, and is slow moving as well. And, and over periods of time and over periods of months and years, you just very slowly change us and turn us just in specific little areas of our lives and you make us more like your son and you make us recognize your son's work and it makes us love him more and that that greater love for him more turns a greater obedience on our part and a greater following on our part and and uh and it turns into something very precious that you've taken broken sinners and you've done something glorious in our lives lord it's just nothing short of a miracle what you've done in my life, what you've done in the lives of these people that are here this morning. And what can we say? But Lord, we just praise you for it. We just thank you for it. We thank you for taking our imperfect obedience and making it something as though it was just really great, just really spectacular. Like we were taking our very first steps and, and you just applaud every one of them. You say, that's, that's what I'm looking for. That's a love for my son. I love my son and, and, and I want to see that love in you and every one of those, he counts and he takes... takes uh, takes as a gem and, and uh, doesn't, doesn't disqualify us for all the times we haven't followed him well, but for all the times that we have followed you well, Lord God, there's reward. That's just incredible. So, Father, we thank you. I thank you, Lord. You are doing work in these people. 
Sometimes we're not even aware of what you're doing. Sometimes we're not aware of how you're changing us. Sometimes we're going through difficulty and strife and, and hardship or suffering, and we don't know what you're doing. We don't even see that anything's going on. But in the end, after a period of months or years even, we see the fruit of your work in our lives. We're just so grateful. You're moving in us, Lord, even when we, we're not aware. Your Spirit's at work by your, by your great power changing our hard hearts putting something glorious there. and Lord, we are just very grateful this morning. Lord, finally, I want to pray for these people just as, as, as their pastor, as, as their under-shepherd. Lord, I want to pray for us all. Give us a greater love for you. Change our hearts, Lord God. Help us to seek you. Help us, just like the song that we sang, help us cast down our idols and give us, a, uh, give us clean hands. Give us a greater love for you. Help us to approach your throne under the grace and the mercy you offered under Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we be changed under it, I pray. And just as the Lord Jesus Christ prayed in John chapter 17, Lord, we want to pray that the love, Lord God, the Father, that you have for the Son, I pray that you would put that love that you have for the Son, I pray that you would put it in us. Give us your kind of love for Jesus Christ, I pray. We need it, Lord God. We need you to change our hearts. We need you to draw us more, more closely to you. And we look forward to it. We look forward to your, more of your work in our lives. It's in Jesus' great name that we pray. Amen. Amen.